about 12 years ago, I had to store my library. And if you know me, you know how painful that was. I had nowhere to put it. And so I got all these boxes and uh, put away my friends. Uh, it was really hard. And for 10 years, uh, they sat in a basement and I had no access uh, to my books. But uh, one day, eventually, I had uh, event bookshelves again and a place to put them. And uh, so I corralled uh, Josiah to uh, come and load a van, uh, a big cargo van, extended cargo van with all these books, and uh, brought them and began to sort them. Now, here's what I thought. I thought, you know, this is going to be a lot of work. And so I said, I need to, uh, you know, it's going to at least take a day to unbox them and, and sort them. And so I said, just a little bit of buffer. I better leave two days uh, for this. Well, day five, uh, let me show you how things looked uh, on the video clip. Uh, this was Saturday, and this is a worship space where the next day we had to uh, meet as a church. And uh, I knew I was in a lot of trouble. I, I knew that I was like five days into it, but I was nowhere near actually uh, getting where I needed to be. And so what I did is I uh, said to Shar, that's good, we don't have to keep looping it, I'm getting depressed. <laughs> I said to Shar and Josiah, like, I need help. <laughs> I need a lot of help. And uh, they came in that day and we put in, uh, I don't know how long a day it was, but it was like a all day. Uh, I needed help from outside myself. Now, friends, have you ever been in a spot where you had created a big mess where things were far outside of what you could fix and you needed help from outside to fix it. Well, according to the passage that we read today, you have been there. All of us have been there. Uh, the, the problem that we've created is much more serious than the problem that I just showed you on the screen, although that was serious too. We needed help. We needed someone from outside of us to come fix the mess that was way beyond what we could ever fix. Right now, we're looking at the book of Hebrews, a letter written to a group of Christians a long time ago. We've just looked at, uh, basically, the theme of the past few weeks is Jesus is incomparable. If you've been away, there's a lot there, but uh, basically, if, you've, if you want to catch up on the past few weeks, three words, Jesus is incomparable. Uh, he is incomparable. He's been showing us how great the exalted Jesus is. But in today's passage, he has another message for us. And here is the essence of the message. We are in a mess, and we need somebody from outside of ourselves to come in and turn things around. So here's the problem. We are in a mess. Here's the situation in Hebrews 2 that's described. God had big plans for us. Uh, we've been talking about angels, but in verse 5, the author in uh, Hebrews 2, verse 5 says this, It wasn't to angels that God subjected the world to come, in, of which we are speaking. Now, so we talk about angels, how Jesus is better than angels, and now the writer says, I want to shift the subject here. It, it's not actually to angels that God subjected the world to come. And if, right away you're thinking, okay, who was it? If it's not to angels that God has subjected the world to come, who is it? He's been saying angels are a big deal. They're greater than humans. They're not, and yet the writer says it's not to the angels that God has objected the world to come. Well, who is it? I'm going to tell you what I think this text is arguing, 
uh, and this is gonna, this blows my mind if I'm correct. Uh, in a minute, I'll explain a little bit about my reasoning for why, what I think he's talking about. I think what he's saying here is, to whom has God subjected the world now and the world to come? Us, humans. He quotes Psalm 8, and he says, look, although angels are higher than humans, they're not the ones ultimately who inherit the world. They're not the ones ultimately that God has put in charge of the world. Later on, he says, it's actually not for humans that Jesus has died. And then he quotes this amazing psalm, Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? Friends, we are humble, right? We're dirt creatures. We're made of dirt. If you ever feel like you're a big shot, all you have to do is go camping for a few days, as we do every year. I mean, after a few days, if there's no comfort station, you begin to go, what's that smell? And it's like, no, that's me. That's like, um, you, you just feel dirty. Like, we're, not, we're dirt creatures. And the psalmist looks at us and says, man, when you look at us, like, we're very limited. We get cranky if we don't get enough sleep. We get hangry if we don't eat regularly. We, like, have these... Um, we're just humble creatures. And he looks at God, he looks at scripture and says, wow, that God would look at us and say, you're important. And he goes on and says, you made him for a while little lower than the angels, and yet you've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection over his feet, under his feet. Now, this, uh, Hebrews quotes that. Psalm 8 is talking about humanity and how God has elevated us as being uh, ordinary, frail creatures. And now Hebrews is saying, to whom has God subjected the world? Now there's a debate here. I just want to pause here and say that some people think that whom has God subjected the world to? A lot of people think, some scholars think it's Jesus. And they, they would disagree with my interpretation and say that actually it, he's making a turn here and saying it's to Jesus that he subjected uh, the world. The I was looking at this, um, I could go either way. Fortunately, the interpretation isn't that different. But I notice in verses 8 and 9, he makes a bit of a contrast between humanity in verse 8, and then he switches to Jesus in verse 9. It's clear he's talking about Jesus in verse 9. For a few reasons, I, I tend to go with Tom Schreiner, who thinks he's talking about humanity here. But here's what I think he's saying, regardless of which view you take. Who has God elevated in this world? Humanity. We don't deserve it, but God has given us a very important role to play. In Genesis 1, we learn that God made you in his image. I want you to hear this today. Uh, it doesn't matter who you are today. If you're coming in here, no matter how broken your life is, no matter how messed up your life is, no matter how bad you're feeling about yourself right now, you were made in God's image. God that hasn't changed. Uh, even sin has not removed God's image from you. You have dignity. You, he has summoned us as humanity to rule the world on God's behalf. And that includes, we read, ruling over the angels. We're lower than the angels, but God's ultimate plan is that we would rule over the angels. God gave us a job to do. What you do in your life is actually part of this mandate that God made you uh, as in his image, to rule over the world. That means when you teach kids in your job, that's part of what he made you to do. That's extending uh, his dominion. You're, you're teaching kids what it means to live in this world wisely and well. When you, if you're an accountant, 
You know, you're bringing order to stuff that's chaos. Somebody throws a pile of receipts on you and, and you make sense of it. You bring it into order. What we do in our various careers, if you're a scientist or uh, a programmer, what you're doing is you're using technology to uh, extend the rule of God in this world. He made us to have this dominion over the world. But here's the problem. How have we done with this job? Would anybody look at the world around us and say, well done, humans, like we've really cared for this world well? We've made a mess of things. Uh, I know what it's like. I remember the first time in high school, uh, I think it was junior high school, I'd never really had to work at school. I remember the first time that I got an F, uh, at, and I realized for the first time, like, okay, like, <laughs> I've just failed at something. What scripture teaches us is we have completely and utterly bungled the job of stewarding this world on God's behalf. We've rebelled against him. We committed high treason against God. This world is a mess. All you have to do is open the news to see what a, a disaster we brought upon this world. But friends, all we have to do is look at our lives and see that we have failed to do what God has called us to do. And that's why verse 8 says this. The writer's been saying, here's what God put us to do. But verse 8, he says, but in putting everything in subjection to him, into subjection to humanity, he left nothing outside his control. But verse 8, this is like the understatement of this passage. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. Would you agree in your life right now, you do not see everything working the way it's supposed to? Would you agree, like this world, your career, your family, your personal life, it's not all going well. And that's what verse 8 is saying. We still live in the middle of the mess. We still live every day with this tension of the world not being the way it was meant to be. It feels so often, although God has put us here with this important role to play in the world, the world is a mess. Our lives are a mess. We can't make life work no matter how hard we try. This is a tension that we feel every day this is the tension the original uh, readers would have faced. Their life was not going their way at all. As a group of believers, you know, they were really struggling with the world pressing in on them and pressuring them not to follow Christ. They felt the tension of life not quite working the way that it was meant to. And that's what uh, verse 8 is talking about. As Tom Schreiner says, we were destined to rule the entire world for God. Everything was supposed to be under the rule and dominion of human beings, but sin intervene to frustrate this rule. The subsequent argument will clarify that actually part of the problem is death that thwarts human dominion over the world. Even if we got life under control, guess what? We're all going to die. Our death is going to be a significant obstacle to us managing the, way, the world the way we were meant to. And so it's, even if we get our lives under control, we eventually die and at least our contribution falls apart. So Schreiner continues, the glory designed for human beings has not become a reality in human history. Instead, human history is littered with the wreckage of destruction and death in a world gone mad. This is the problem. God gave us a job to do, but we've made a mess of it. Our only hope is to get some help from outside of ourselves. And so here's what verses 9 to 18 say. God's solution is that Jesus became one of us to do what we couldn't do ourselves. We've seen the problem, and here's the solution. Jesus became one of us to do what we couldn't do ourselves. 
I argue up to verse 8, he's talking about us. Verse 9, he shifts, and he says this about Jesus. We see him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Now, we don't have to guess who he's talking about, right? Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the sufferings of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Chapters 1 and the Verse 5 verses of chapter 2 have been about how great Jesus is. In chapter 2 now, the author argues this great exalted Jesus, the one who's the son of God, the given the name above all names, the heir of all that God has, the uh, creator, the stainer of this world. He now says, let me tell you something else about Jesus. This Jesus humbled himself. He's not just the exalted Jesus He's the humble Jesus. He's the Jesus who came into this world for you and for me. Uh, he talks about not only his incarnation, but his suffering and death. Uh, we're about to experience this and live through it again this year. The exalted Jesus we've talked about became one of us. He lived a life that we couldn't live. He died in our place. We were in trouble, and God sent help. He joined us to give us the help that was desperately needed. There's a couple of things in verse 10 we really have to unpack. Um, it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist. Again, the exalted Jesus, the one who holds everything together. In bringing many sons to glory should, be made, uh, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. What does this mean that Jesus was made perfect through suffering? I thought Jesus was already perfect. What does this mean that Jesus was made perfect through suffering? Well, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that Jesus was imperfect. It doesn't mean that there was a deficiency that had to be corrected. Here's what it means. The word perfected there means completion, uh, completed. It means that uh, God gave Jesus, God gave his son a job to do, and Jesus saw it to the end. He completed the mission that the father had given him. He was perfectly equipped and and qualified for the role that God had prepared for him. Friends, what a difference. God gave us a role to play in this world. Adam and Eve, now all your descendants, here's a job I want to do. What did we do? Squirrel. Like, <laughs> we're just like, oh, actually, no, more, more than distraction, like outright rebellion. Like distraction and then rebellion against God. God gives Jesus a job to do. What does Jesus do? He completed it. Where we failed... We couldn't get the job done. We made a mess of things. God sent his son, Jesus. He completed it. Unlike us, we did not perfect through suffering the work that God gave us to do. We did not complete it. God sent his son. He completed it. Get this. Verse 10, there's another word I want you to notice. You see where it says founder? That, uh, it calls Jesus a founder of our salvation. Here I think founder is like, uh, I don't know, like he just began it. He's the, the first to do it. The word founder, actually, in the original, has the idea of trailblazer. It has the idea of actually something like a hero or a leader. Uh, in Greek mythology, actually, they refer to Hercules as a founder, kind of like a champion. Uh, one pastor explains that some people are saying, uh, you could translate this verse, that Jesus is the champion of our salvation. He is the hero of our salvation. He's like the Superman of our salvation. Again, notice the difference. 
We're there flailing. God gave us a job to do. All we've got is need and desperation. Jesus comes and completes the work, and he becomes the champion. He becomes, he does, like we're in trouble, and the hero comes in and does what we were powerless to do, and he rescues us. Notice the contrast that Hebrews is making. God gave us a role, we failed. God gave Jesus a role, and he succeeded. That makes him qualified. All of humanity has failed at the job God gave us to do, except for one. His name is Jesus. Why did Jesus come? To do what we couldn't do for ourselves. Jesus came to carry out an assignment from his father. It's almost like God, the triune God, was looking at humanity saying, I've given them a role to do. I can picture them just looking at humanity and things are getting worse and worse. Now, from eternity, they knew this was going to happen, but they're saying, you know, there's only one solution for this problem. We need one human who's actually going to live out what our intention for humanity is. We need one human who can do for them what they can't do ourselves. And the father looks at the son, and the son says, yes, I know, I'll go. I will become one of them. I will do what they're powerless to do for themselves. I will do what they should have done all along. I will go and do it for them. And so verse 11 says, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. In other words, Jesus came so that he could be one of us to do for us what needed to be done. He goes on and quotes a couple of Old Testament texts, Psalm 22, verse 22 and Isaiah 8, 17 to 18, that speaks of Jesus' solidarity with us. And here's the amazing thing. Jesus stands in our midst. Jesus stands in the middle of our mess. Jesus stands in the middle of our congregation. Jesus became one of us to do what we couldn't do for ourselves. Jesus became human to do what we could not do for ourselves. We failed. And so Jesus joined us as our leader, our hero, to do what we couldn't do for ourselves. What exactly did Jesus do? What exactly did Jesus do? Well, the passage goes on and says, let me tell you exactly what Jesus did. He had to become one of us to do these three things. And Hebrews says, let me just tell you exactly what Jesus Christ did when he became one of us. The first thing he did, Hebrews says, is he overcame death. Even better, he didn't just overcome death. He overcame the one who has power over death. Verse 9 says, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That word taste doesn't mean like it kind of has, you and I read it and we think, oh, we had a little sip of death. The picture actually is he gulped it. Like he took death. If it was a cup of death, the Old Testament image is he took that cup of death and he drank it all the way to the bottom. That thing that we were afraid to, to, to gulp, he gulped it for us. The thing that would have destroyed us, it didn't destroy him. He drank it and he drank it all the way down. And verses 14 to 15 say, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Friends, all of us are going to die. Every single one of us. Uh, it's inevitable. It's coming. It's uh, quicker. I mean, life goes so quickly. And all of us are going to die. Jesus became one of us. And in becoming one of us, he became somebody who also was going to experience death. But unlike all of us, 
I mean, we die. I, humanity dies. There's nothing. I've never, I, I've stood at a lot of gravesides and buried a lot of people. And I remember one time just thinking, like, what hope do I have to share? I'm looking at God's word and saying, either what I'm sharing right now is like the biggest lie in the world or the greatest hope in the world. And I, I'm staring there, like, what hope is there for humanity when you're looking in the grave? Because nobody has ever come back. Like, I've never buried anybody in the graveyard and then seen them at church the next Sunday. Not once. It's never like, hey, good to see you. Rough week, but, you know, like, <laughs> things are looking good. There's never been one who's defeated death except for Jesus. Jesus went to the grave. There's only one person who went to the grave and came back. There's only one person who's ever lived who overcame death. And this passage is saying he did so to overcome the power of death for us. That just as he came back from the grave, we too will go to the grave. But that won't be the end. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead will raise you from the dead as well. And that's why he says uh, he destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Friends, only one person has gone toe-to-toe with death and one. Billions of people have died over thousands of years, but only one has died and come back to life. And when he did, he defeated death and the one that has the power of death so that we no longer have to be afraid. We can face death and say, this is inconvenient. <laughs> we can face death and say, this, this sucks. I do not like this. But we don't have to be afraid. We can face death knowing that it's not the end. If we've trusted Jesus, if you've trusted Jesus, friends, why did Jesus come? Because somebody had to conquer death. Some human had to do it. He's the only one who did, and he did it for you. You can approach your own death without fear because Jesus has defeated death on your behalf. Isn't that amazing? I don't know. I've, there's something about being in a hospital room uh, watching people die where it's like either like this is hope. This is the problem that we're all going to face. Nobody's got the answer except that Jesus became one of us and defeated death for us. But friends, that's not even all. Verse 16 and 17, here's the second thing that God did, that Jesus did. Not only did he overcome death and defeated the one behind death, but number two, he dealt with God's wrath. Verse 16, it's surely not angels that he helps. Pause there, by the way, like angels are greater than us. Isn't it amazing Jesus didn't die for the sins of angels? Isn't it amazing angels rebelled against God and God did not say launch a rescue plan to save them from their sins. He did for us. Why? I have no idea. But it's amazing. It's not angels that he helps. But he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation. There is the word for the sins of people. What did Jesus do? He defeated our two greatest problems. One is death. One is sin. Friends, we no longer have to fear death, but here's the other thing that Jesus did. He died for our sins. Propitiation is this word that at first strikes us the wrong way. Uh, what it means is propitiation uh, is he took away the wrath of God against us for our sins. Now, what bothers us with that? We think, what right does God have to be angry? We don't like the idea of the wrath of God. And yet at the same time, isn't it interesting that when we hear of a heinous crime, we're filled with wrath, 
rightfully, when we hear of sex trafficking, when we hear of, of injustice in the world, what are we? Angry, right? If a judge uh, lets uh, somebody off and says, oh, no big deal, like this week, Shar uh, was reading a news story where a doctor that was uh, faced uh, really serious charges for like the third time and was let off with a warning. We were angry. It's like, this is unjust. This should not be. Well, God looks at our rebellion against him and rightfully so is angry. It's a flip side of his, it, it's, it's part of his holiness, a flip side of his love. God loves us enough to be grieved, to be angry at sin. But the problem is we have all sinned. And God, our sins deserve the wrath of God. And Jesus came in our place to take that wrath, to bear that wrath. To obtain our salvation for us, God himself met the demands of his holiness in Christ. Christ did not go to be the victim. Christ went willingly to bear our sins. It's not like the father turned against the son and the son was like, what are you doing? Jesus went willingly to die in our place, to bear the wrath that we deserved. And as a high priest, he offered the perfect sacrifice himself so that anyone who trusts in Christ no longer faces God's wrath. Friends, you no longer have to fear death. When you die, you can know that death is not the end. You, you can still not like death. Death is still an enemy, but it's an enemy that's been defeated. Friends, you no longer have to fear the wrath of God. It doesn't matter your sins. It doesn't matter how many sins you've committed. If you are in Jesus Christ, your sins, the wrath, the wrath of God, the judgment of God on your sins has been paid in full by Jesus. And one day you can stand before, when you die, you can stand before God. And as you're getting ready to stand before God, yeah, do you remember, did anybody see the comic when you're a kid? And it was like somebody dies in a car crash and they set up this big video screen and it's a replay of like all your worst moments. I remember as a kid being terrified. I remember... Uh, God, I remember having this awful, I mean, I don't even know what I'd done at that age. I was like 16 years old. Um, I remember being terrified. Friends, we don't have to be terrified. On that day when we stand before Jesus, you know what's going to be played on that day? The righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's going to be like, let's look at your life. And as the screen comes up, it's going to be Jesus, the perfect life of Jesus. And it's going to be well done because you're in Jesus. His righteousness is yours. You're in. Jesus died to defeat the twin terrors of sin and death. But number three, the final thing that Jesus became human to do, not only did he defeat death for us, not only did he take the wrath of God for us, but in verse 18, he's able to help us when we're tempted. Final thing is he's able to help us when we're tempted. Has anyone been tempted in the last 24 hours? I have. Do you know who's able to help you? Do you know who understands? Jesus. Isn't that amazing? I was reading this. Uh, Tony Evans uh, talks about childbirth. And right away you're like, what does Tony Evans know about childbirth? <laughs> and that's exactly the point. Tony Evans says, no matter how hard I try to talk to a woman who's had a child about childbirth, I can't really understand. Do you know who understands everything that we're going through. Jesus is not one who is saying, I can imagine what it must be like. Jesus is one who says to us, I know exactly what it's like. God himself experienced temptation like we do. 
He was sinless, but he sure knew what it was like to be tempted. He never gave in to that temptation, but everything that you and I are tempted to do wrong, Jesus was too. And because he suffered when he was tempted, he knows what it's like, and he's able to help us because he knows exactly what we're going through. Friend, Jesus knows what you're going through. He can help. He understands. He can provide grace and mercy in our time of need. This is a complicated passage. Uh, there's so much here that we haven't, I mean, there's always more than, but here's what this passage is saying. God gave us a role to play in this world, and we completely bungled it, and this world is a mess. To help us, God sent this exalted Jesus that we've been talking about to come and do what we couldn't do for ourselves. He became our leader, and he overcame death. He dealt with God's wrath, and present tense, is able to help us with our struggles today. Let me just close by uh, bringing it home in just a couple of ways. Have you ever thought what it means that Jesus was willing to enter our mess and help us? In our story, I'm not going to reveal any names. I hope, if I, unless I let it slip, to, uh, you don't, probably don't know this person anyway, but I don't want to reveal any names. But we got this story in our family. One time we were in the States, and they're all my nieces and nephews, and uh, you know, in the States, military is a big deal, so they have this tank in the center of town, and all the kids are climbing on the tank, and uh, everything was going great, like it's like dangerous, exactly what like kids love, right? Like climbing on the, the gun of the tank, and everything's like amazing. Well, then a police officer comes, and the police officer's like, what are you guys doing? Uh, you shouldn't be climbing on the tank. Well, there was an adult in charge of the children. And what the adult did at the moment when the police officer uh, showed up is, what are you supposed to do when you're an adult in that case, right? Sorry, officer, I'm in charge. I'll get them off right away. I apologize. Well, the adult in charge uh, turned their back and walked away and said, I know nothing. Like, I have nothing to do with what's going on here. Uh, not my fault. I have never met these kids before. Like, <laughs> officer, like, if I were you, I'd arrest them all. Like, <laughs> Friends, I think the key decision is when we're like, do you, when somebody's in a mess, do you enter the mess with them? Do you show solidarity with them? Do you actually take what's coming to them and say, bring it on me? Like, I don't want them to go through it alone. Jesus could have looked at us in our mess and turned away and said, I have nothing to do with it. They brought it on themselves. Uh, that, that's their problem. It's not my problem. You know what Jesus did? It was, wasn't his problem. He had nothing to do with our mess. He entered our mess. He did not say, I've got nothing to do with this. Blame them, not me. Jesus said, blame me. Jesus, although he was the only innocent person who ever lived, willingly entered our mess and took it all on himself. All that we deserved, he took upon ourselves. You know what that means today? There is not, nobody here today who's in a mess that Jesus is not willing to enter the mess fully and take upon himself everything that your mess has created. What a great savior. What a great savior that Jesus was willing to do this for us. He's not scared to enter your mess. He's not going to turn from you no matter how bad your life is. He's not going to turn from you no matter how much you've rebelled against him. There's nobody here who's sinned beyond the reach of the grace of Jesus. All you need to do is bring your mess to him. He will take it all. Come to him, don't waste a minute. He's never turned anyone away.
But let me just apply this in one other way. One of the great battles uh, in our early marriages, I had this idea that Shar could not handle my honesty. I thought my life is way too messy. She could never understand. There's no way that she could ever, if she knew the true me, if she could ever really love me. And so as, as a result, I, I thought, well, my strategy is going to be to hide my flaws from her, which is laughable because she saw them all. Um, but I thought I was doing a good job of there's no way she can sympathize. There's no way she can understand. And there's no way she can love me. In this passage, it tells us if, if you're trying to present your best to God, if you think that if you come to God with your struggles and temptations, that there's no way that he could understand. This passage screams at us, I understand. Jesus says to us in this passage, don't get me wrong, I've never sinned, but I know exactly what it's like to be human. I know exactly what it's like to struggle. I know exactly what it's like to face the same temptations that you have. You don't have to hide from me. You can run because I am your sympathetic high priest. Was Jesus tempted to steal? Well, if you think about him with his father's business, I'm sure that there were times when it, he might have been tempted to steal. When it might have been te uh, tempting to uh, change a, an invoice or to take advantage of a situation. Did Jesus feel that temptation? Yes, he understands. Did he cheat? No. Did he actually do it? No. But he understands the temptation. Do you think he was tempted to cheat? Do you think he was tempted to slander someone, to smear someone's reputation with his words? Well, according to Hebrews, yes. Do you think that Jesus was tempted sexually? I believe he was. He did not sin, but he knows what it's like. He didn't give in to that temptation, but he knows what it's like. Everything that you and I are tempted to do, Jesus was too. And that means we can come to him today no matter what we're going through. We don't have to hide from him. We can come to him because Jesus is our faithful high priest who knows exactly what it's like to be tempted and he says to come to him today. Friends, we've made a mess. We needed outside help. But Jesus became one of us to do what we couldn't do for ourselves. What a savior. What a God. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the exalted Jesus who's far above all things, Lord. There's nobody like him. But thank you for this exalted Jesus who is willing to humble himself and enter our mess. Thank you that he became one of us, that he defeated death, that he bore your wrath. He died in our place. Thank you that because of his experience as one of us, that he is able to sympathize with us. I thank you that today he is still God and fully human standing. He's seated at your right hand. He's still fully human. He still understands. Thank you for Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would run to him today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.